Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this sermon series, Black Swan, we are exploring Jesus through the eyes of Mark's gospel. We are going to be looking at the reason why Jesus, who started off as a poor peasant from Nazareth, became one of the most influential figures in the Western world. I hope you enjoy. So I'd like to begin today by talking to you all about rules. Rules. Some of us love them, and some of us hate them. If you like rules, it's probably because rules bring a certain amount of structure and order to your life. Rules provide us with a sense of predictability in an often chaotic world. Am I right about that? All right. For those of us who dislike rules, rules are the very thing that restrict our freedom. Rules are the things that make everything enjoyable about life go away. Am I right about that, for those of you who dislike rules? Yes. All right. Now, I don't know where you are on the spectrum of liking or disliking rules, but what I can tell you is that your life stage has a lot to say about what you're going to think about rules. For instance, when you're a child, I have a little four-year-old guy, right? His entire life is dictated by rules. And this is important because he doesn't have enough life experience yet to know when his actions might be detrimental to his health. So his parents put into place all these rules, and he doesn't entirely understand why they're there, but we have them in place. No, you can't play with that knife. I know it looks shiny and inviting, and it looks like it's going to be a lot of fun, but you don't realize that one wrong move could end everything. So we put the rule in place. No playing with knives. Did you all have that rule growing up? No playing with knives? Really? Nobody did? Your parents were highly negligent then. And I'm surprised that you're here. (laughs) Then as you get a little bit older, you find that those rules which were designed to protect you, all of a sudden they begin to feel a little bit constricting. Particularly when you become a teenager, all those rules that your parents put in place, they feel a little bit arbitrary and senseless. And the reason why they feel this way is because as a teenager, you've developed a lot more of physical ability than when you were a child. And so that physical ability gives you the belief that those rules which were put in place to protect you no longer apply to you. If we use the concept of the knife one more time, as a teenager, you understand that a knife can cut you. You probably even developed some skill with how to use a knife so that you don't cut yourself when operating one. But just because you know how to use a knife doesn't mean you know how to use common sense. Am I right about that? Am I right about that? Okay. Have you ever had a conversation like this? Maybe you had one with your parents or you had one with your teenager where you said, why can't I stay out past 10 o'clock? I know Timmy got a reckless driving ticket for going 120 miles per hour on I-90, but Timmy is still my friend and friends stick together, mom. That's the way it goes. Did you ever say that? Anybody in here? I know you did at some point in time. You definitely said it. And the reason why you said it, or your teenager said it to you, is because teenagers, no offense to any teenagers in the audience, tend not to have the best judgment. And that's why your insurance rates won't drop until you're 25 years old, because it takes that long for you to get your impulses under control. Should I tell the joke again, for those of you who heard it before? 
Okay, well, it's not even a joke. It's just a reality, which is that literally one week after I got my license, when I was 16, I got my first reckless driving ticket. It took one week for me to do that. I am the poster child for why you should not give teenagers licenses. <laughs> but then as you get a little bit older and you become an adult, something strange happens. All of a sudden, there are very few rules governing your life. You can pretty much do whatever you want to do when you want to do it. And ironically, that's the time when rules become the most important to you. It's when you value them the most. You see, as an adult, you have this larger perspective on the world, right? And you realize, hold on a second, when I was young and I was dreaming about doing whatever I wanted to do when I want to do it, actually that kind of leads to a lot of chaos. So, you know what, I think rules are important. And it's why adults will spend so much time in courts trying to figure out what the right rules are versus the wrong rules. Because every adult wants their version of the rules to be the ones that everyone else has to follow. Am I correct about that? Yes, our lawyers in the audience know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> so, this is particularly true of religious people. People who adhere to a religion believe that they know exactly how human beings should be living their lives. They believe this because they have in their possession documents, or scriptures as we call them, that tell us exactly how God wants us to live. These scriptures are essentially given to us, as we believe, by God. They're a manual, a roadmap, for exactly how God expects us to act. These are the rules for morality. The problem is, not every religion agrees as to what those rules should be. And what complicates things even further is the fact that even within the same religion, people disagree about which rules should take precedence over others. For instance, in Islam, not everyone agrees about how to interpret the Quran. And as is evident from all the fighting in the Middle East, those disagreements can lead to bloodshed. Now, as people who have grown up in America, people who value religious freedom, that kind of adherence to your version of the rules, that can be kind of hard for us to understand. Would you agree with that? I mean, for us, I think our motto tends to be, believe whatever you want to believe, just don't impose your beliefs on me. Is that kind of how we act? Do you think that's how most of us are? So I would say what we value more is religious freedom more than we value the religion itself. I would say that most of us in this room identify more with our national identity than we do with our religious identity. I think most of us in here would probably be more likely to defend our country than we would to defend our faith. But what you have to appreciate is that for most religious people around the world, the exact opposite is true. For most people, their religion is their life. And when anyone tries to compromise their religious values, then in the same way that we're willing to defend our country, they are willing to defend their religion. Now, I bring this up for a very important reason. Because when we read about people in the Bible, we're not reading about people like us, people who do church for one hour on Sunday morning. We're reading about people for whom their religion is everything. There is nothing more important to these people than living the way God wants them to live. 
And so in the scripture that we read this morning, when people are debating over the law, you need to realize that this just isn't some intellectual debate where they say, okay, well, go on with your life then. These debates have huge consequences for people's lives because how you interpret a law defines whether or not you are actually living the way God intended for you to live. For the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about Mark chapter 2. In Mark chapter 2, it breaks away from this kind of narrative flow that we've been going through, and we're introduced to a series of small scenes or vignettes where Jesus has the opportunity to tell us about his interpretation of the law. Most of these interpretations, frankly, are kind of boring, but the truth is he gets the opportunity to tell us about them. And what Mark has chosen to do is to take Jesus' interpretation of the law and contrast that with the Pharisees. Now, how many people in here have heard of the Pharisees before? Raise your hand. Now, how many of you in here know who the Pharisees are? Yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> Not many. Where I was sitting where you are, I heard that word Pharisee hundreds of times during my time in church. Had zero clue what it meant because nobody ever defined it. So we're going to be talking a lot about the Pharisees in coming months. So I think it's important for us to know who they are. Because if you don't understand who they are, you can't really understand what's happening with Jesus. So the Pharisees, they're a sect of Judaism. And a sect is kind of like a denomination in Christianity. What denomination are we? Okay, so then you got other ones like Lutherans, Baptists, Methodists, Episcopalians. Not that you want to be any of those. (laughs) But they exist, and we have to acknowledge them. So these people, they're Christian, just like us, but they have slightly different interpretations of the Bible. Now, in the same way, you have the Pharisees. The Pharisees are just one sect, one denomination of Judaism. During the first century, there were lots of different sects. There were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Zealots, and a bunch of other smaller sects. The reason why Mark chooses to compare and contrast Jesus' interpretation with that of the Pharisees is because at the time Mark was writing his gospel, the Pharisees were becoming the dominant form of Judaism. So, do you all remember when I told you Mark was writing his gospel? What was the year? Do you remember? 70 AD. They've been to the other sermon. They remember what was. (laughs) All right. So, 70 AD. Very good. So, 70 AD is a very important year. It's not important because Mark wrote his gospel that year. It's important for a very different reason. That was the year that the Roman army broke through into Jerusalem and destroyed the Jewish temple, leveled it to the ground. The only piece of that that is still left to this day is what is known as the Wailing Wall. You can go over and see it in Israel to this day. Many people go there to pray, but is the only part of this massive temple that remains. And it was there when Jesus was alive, which is kind of a cool thing. We're going to talk a lot about the destruction of the temple in coming sermons, because it is really important for why we're here together as Christians. But for now, what I need you to know is that when the temple was destroyed, there was no longer a central location where the Jews could look to to worship God. This would kind of be like for the Catholics if the Vatican was destroyed. 
That would be really tough because they would get rid of that central location. So when the temple is destroyed, all the Jews, they have to look for another place to worship. And the logical place for them to go is the synagogues. And synagogues are just like churches, really no different in that way. So if the Vatican was destroyed, where would all the Catholics go? Well, they would just go to the churches, right? And that's exactly what the Jewish people did. But here's the interesting thing. Almost all the sects of Judaism, with the exception of the Pharisees, were very tied to the temple. And so when the temple was destroyed, so was their movement. But the Pharisees, their entire movement was built around educating the masses in the synagogues. So what happens is, the temple is destroyed, the people go out to the synagogues, and who's there waiting for them? The Pharisees. And this is why they become the dominant form of Judaism. What set the Pharisees apart from everyone else was how they looked at the law. Do you all remember last week when I told you there were five books in the Bible, first five books, how many laws were in there? Do you all remember? 613. Okay. I was going to have to give them half credit again from the last... (laughs) 615 seems to be the number that sticks over here, but 13, you're actually right. 613 laws. So the Pharisees, these guys and women, but mostly men, were concerned with making sure they didn't break any of those laws. And the way they did this was they developed these things called gazeras. Now a gazera, what that literally means is preventative legislation. So a gazera is a law that prevents you from breaking the law. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay, it's a law that prevents you from breaking the law. If it doesn't make any sense, let me give you an example. So, there is a law in the Old Testament that says you are supposed to observe the Sabbath. So you work six days, and then on Saturday, you go and you rest. In Exodus 31, 14, it says that if you do not rest on the Sabbath, then you should be put to death. I know that's pretty extreme, but they really wanted you to rest on the Sabbath. So when you're at home watching football on Sunday, you're doing exactly what God wants you to do. (laughs) Exactly. You're resting. And hopefully not doing too much to get the dip out of the the chips, right? Don't want to work too hard. So... The Pharisees, they were very concerned. They wanted to make sure they didn't break this law. So they developed gazeras around Sabbath observance. So if we go back to Jesus' time, you know that everybody needs food and water on the Sabbath. And the problem is, is that you don't want to work on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees, they put a gazera in place that said, okay, if you have a well, you can go 40 paces to that well to get water. But more than 40 paces that is considered to be work, okay? So that sounds, I know, very detailed, but it gets so much more detailed than that. Like every aspect of your life has a gazera when it comes to Sabbath observance. Am I on on this? So if I come down, I want you to understand that the gazera is kind of like a fence. So the idea is if you follow the gazera, let's say this is the law, the table represents the law. If you follow the gazira and you stay behind the fence, then you know that you're not actually going to break the law. Do you see what I'm saying? 
So that's the importance of the gazira. The gazira is a fence that keeps you from breaking the law. Now these gazeras, they get into extreme minutia of day-to-day -day life. There is nothing that they haven't thought of. So in present modern-day Judaism, there's gazeras that say things like, on the Sabbath, you're not allowed to turn on a light switch. You can't flip it on, because that is considered to be work. I live next door to a Jewish rabbi, and his wife came over one time. Uh, this was back when I was in Harrisburg. I should probably say that, not now. But uh, back when I was in Harrisburg, and she said, can you come over to my house and turn off the light switch? Because it was on the Sabbath. I think it probably took her more work to come over to my house <laughs> to get Courtney to go back to turn the light switch off. But that's the thinking, right? You're not allowed to drive a car on the Sabbath because operating machinery, that is considered to be work. Now that might sound kind of crazy to us, right? Who would want to live with that kind of burden? But you have to realize that for the Jewish people, God was kind enough to give them all of these laws and tell them exactly how they're supposed to live. So for them, it's not a burden at all. For them, by following these laws, they are honoring God. So you can understand that when we get to this whole scene in Mark, where all of a sudden, Jesus, he's out in the grain field, he's picking grain on the Sabbath. What should technically happen to him? He should be put to death, shouldn't he? And he should have thought ahead like everyone else and just planned for the Sabbath and had his food ready, but instead he's out there picking grain. Now the Pharisees, they come out, and you can understand, now we know all the background, why they would be upset about this, why they're mad that he's actually doing this. But there's a few little problems with this scene as it's been set up by Mark. The first problem is that if the Pharisees are so concerned with following the law, observing the Sabbath, why are they out in a wheat field to observe Jesus when he's actually picking grain? Shouldn't they be at home resting? Shouldn't they be at the synagogue worshiping God? Isn't that where they should be? And that's exactly where they would be. And that's the first sign that you know that this story is totally fabricated. Because you would never find a Pharisee in a wheat field on the Sabbath. It just wouldn't happen. You wouldn't see it. The second reason why you know this story is made up is because all the details of the Old Testament story that Jesus talks about are totally wrong. So in this scripture, what happens is Jesus, he's out in the field, the Pharisees confront him, and he quotes some scripture to them. And this is what Jesus says. He says, have you not read what it says? When David and his companions were hungry and in needed food, David entered into the house of God when Abiathar was high priest and took the bread of presence, which it is only lawful for the priest to eat, and gave some to his companions. Seems pretty simple, right? Okay, he's referencing 1 Samuel 21, 1 to 6. And if you go back and you read that story, those six verses, you find that almost none of the details in there are correct. First of all, the high priest was not Abiathar, I don't know who that is, but it was this guy, Ahimelech, that's what it says in the scripture. The second thing you need to know is, David didn't go into the temple to take the bread of presence, the priest just gives it to him. And the third thing, which is most important, is that this scene doesn't even take place on the Sabbath, so it has nothing to do with whatever it is that they're talking about. So, you're looking at this, and you're thinking to yourself, Either Jesus really doesn't know his Old Testament very well, or Mark doesn't know his Old Testament very well. And I'm going to go with option two on that one. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So here's probably how it happened. This is why we have all these details that are messed up. It is clear that at some point in time, Mark heard this story, or maybe he read it even, but he couldn't remember all the details. So when he's writing this scene out, he puts these words into Jesus' mouth. But he can't remember exactly how it goes. And that's fine for him, because one, his community has never read the Old Testament, so they're not going to know the difference. And two, he has no idea that people like you and me, we're going to be reading it 2,000 years from now, and we'll actually have the Old Testament to go back and look at and say, whoop, you got that one wrong. I think had he known that, he probably would have gone and fact-checked it a little better than he did. So if the details are all wrong, and this story is totally fabricated, why is it even in his gospel? Well, I think... The reason why he includes it is because he wants to illustrate something very important about Jesus' movement. Jesus and his disciples did not pay very much attention to the fence, the gazeras, that the Pharisees had erected around the law. Jesus certainly observed the Sabbath, there's no doubt about that, but he wasn't so concerned with all those extra rules. From Jesus' perspective, it's important that you follow God's law. But, here's the thing, he doesn't believe that the extra rules put around him are always beneficial. For him, Sabbath observance is the important thing. That's a day for you to rest. Everything else is just details. Now, that's Jesus' perspective on things. But here's the thing, those details, they do matter. And they do make a difference. As much as we might want to sit there and say, oh, the Pharisees, they're crazy, they don't know what they're talking about, well, from the perspective of the Jewish mind, which would be Jesus and a lot of other people, those details make a big difference. And just so you don't think that this way of thinking is some ancient concept that doesn't apply to today, do you all realize that the only sect of Judaism that made it out of first century were the Pharisees? So how many of you have Jewish friends? Okay, when you meet your Jewish friend, they are descendant of the Pharisees. They inherited their entire religion from them. This is why modern Jews are so obsessed with the details. It's why they believe they are honoring God by minding the fence. But Jesus, he taught us to honor God in a slightly different way. Jesus taught us that we should walk past the fence. He taught us that we should not be so concerned with the details. He taught us that it's the spirit of the law that matters a lot more than the law itself. Now, there's pluses and there's minuses to this way of thinking. The minus with this way of thinking, I've got to make myself an entrance here so I can actually get in. We were going to do this to you guys. Can you imagine trying to get through this? <laughs> so, the minus to this way of thinking is that when you open the fence, it's a lot easier to break the law. Can we agree on that? And let's be honest, Christians were not very good at observing the Sabbath, at least the way that it was intended to be observed. But the plus side, the good side to this, is that it opens the door for anyone to be part of God's family. Now, I don't profess to know which way is better, and I don't know which way is more right in God's eyes. 
All I know is, is that our way, the Christian way, welcomes all people. And that means a lot to me as a person who was never very good at following the rules. Today we come to this table as a reminder of how Jesus opened the fence for us. Jesus wants us to observe the Sabbath, but he also wants us to know that there's more to God than simply following the right rules. Jesus wants us to have an experience. He wants us to walk past the fence, to cross over it, not just to take a little bite of bread and a sip of juice. He wants you to have a relationship with God. And so, as you take communion this morning, as it is passed out among the congregation, I hope you will remember how Jesus broke the rules so that you might have the opportunity to be part of God's family. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.